Turn over in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, we begin a new section of the book of Ezekiel. This chapter begins a big change as a message from doom is realized. And now we see that the message changes. In this chapter, in this time frame, is when they get the news that Jerusalem has fallen. It had already fallen before this was written, but they get the news of it here. And in chapter 33, in verse 1, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Now, we don't have a date for this one. We do have a date for the next one that's coming up. But this one would be right around the same time as the as the one that's coming up. But again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land, take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet... And warns the people that whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. Now we're reminded of two responsibilities here in this chapter. The first is that there's a responsibility on the prophet to speak warnings that are given. When that seer would see a danger, when God would give him a word, he would speak that. The second is the people's responsibility to hear and to heed the warning that is given and repent. And this first one, it says, if the, if the watchman gives the warning... And the people don't listen. Well, then it's up to them. But verse 6 hits the other one. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, the sword comes and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So the watchman has a responsibility there. Now verse 7 Take note of this one. We're going to compare this to another verse. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Now in Ezekiel chapter 3, if you can remember back when we were covering that, verse 16 reads this way, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. Very similar to verse 7 in chapter 33. And he goes on, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, 
and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Now do understand this, if God gives you a warning in your life, there is, st- there is still time to repent and change the direction. If he if he's giving you warning, you don't have to wonder, well, is it too late? The enemy is always going to try and get you to despair and lose hope and say, it's too late, you can't do anything about it now. But if God gave you the warning, it means there's time. Just listen to him. He says right there, he shall surely live because he took warning. Now you'll notice very these are very similar. And you may ask yourself, if Ezekiel is so attentive to the things of God, Why would God need to repeat this so much? The reason this is probably repeated is because Ezekiel's ministry is about to be validated. People have been critics. People have been questioning whether he's hearing from God. People have been leaving false prophets and the things they've been saying. And Ezekiel keeps holding to the same message that God has given him, that the city would be destroyed. Babylon is coming. They're going to break the city down, destroy it. Other prophets are giving different different things, but he's stuck with this. And now there's going to be someone who's going to come from Jerusalem who escaped and brought back word that it is indeed destroyed. Now, if you're wondering, you look at all this responsibility on a watchman, why in the world would anyone want to be a watchman? Why would anyone want to hear the word of the Lord and give warnings? Why would anyone want to become a, a minister for God in this in this way? If you're going to have such a great responsibility, especially here with these these people, the people that you're speaking to are usually people who are in sin. That's why you're there to give them a warning. When we're falling to sin, we generally have a certain level of pride and hard-heartedness. And that pride and that hard-heartedness keeps us from desiring godly correction. And so we don't always take the godly correction because we're in pride, we're in hard-heartedness. And when we hear the correction of God... We reject it. We go another way. So why would anyone want to become a watchman when most people are going to reject the message that you're going to bring and not going to respond? And if you don't bring it or bring it correctly, you are going to be responsible for those people dying. Well, to accept the responsibility of a watchman over just being a regular Christian, I'm sure many of us think, why not just be a regular Christian? Why in the world go with all that? It won't make sense to anyone who does not love God more than everything. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he was mentioning to them, you've got to love God more than you love all these other things. Because these love of other things will keep you from doing what God wants you to do. If we love God more than all these other things, becoming a watchman, becoming a person who proclaims the word of God, to people who don't necessarily want to hear it is not a problem, it's not even a choice because we love God so much that all we want to do is to serve Him the way that He wants. So he's going over here in these first nine verses what it is to be a watchman, how the people are to respond to a watchman. In verse 10, Therefore you, O son of man, Say to the house of Israel, Thus you shall say, If our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, 
How can we then live? I think they made a song out of that phrase there. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now here in this, in these, uh, these two verses, there's a call to turn from evil. It's similar to a call in eight, in chapter 18, verses 21 through 32. You can write that down if you want to go take a look at that later. I'm not going to right now. But look at verse, verse 11, then we'll go back to verse 10. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his, from his way and live. Now we don't hear too much about the debate anymore, but a long time ago there was a theologian by the name of John Calvin who came up with a theology that's called Calvinism. It was uh, popularized by the term tulip. They uh, stood for the five uh, main points of Calvinism. But one of the things they would say is in their, that, that our futures have been determined, that we have been preordained to either be saved or preordained to be lost. And if we are preordained to be lost, then from the time that we were born on this earth, we were heading to hell. And if we were preordained to heaven, no matter what, we would be heading to heaven. Now that has infected a number of doctrines in different churches. And many still hold to that. They may not know John Calvin. They may not know Calvinism. But they have many of the points buried in there. But look at this in verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. This verse shatters that theology. Because if you are going to think that God has said, all right, we're going to have you on the earth, and then at the end of it, you're going to go to hell. And you're going to be in punishment there. Then this verse wouldn't make any sense. But that's not how God did it. It is our free choice. We have the ability to choose God. We have the ability to choose not to serve God and to go whichever way we want, which is why him sending watchmen, he expected them to hear the word that the watchmen had and repent, and therefore save themselves from whatever trouble was ahead for them. But go back here to verse 10. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you shall say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live. This is the first reason that they give for not responding to the word. Even today, everyone has a reason why they don't need to respond to the word of God, why they don't need to respond to the preachers and prophets and people that are around that are proclaiming the word of God. They all have hard hearts that they disguise as something else and they just say, well, I'm, I just don't see the truth in that or whatever it might be. But it's all because they have a hard heart and they have pride that is keeping them from receiving the way of God. But here in this one, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you shall say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Here's the first reason that people reject the word of the watchman and stay in their path of sin instead of going in the path of righteousness It's despair. They have no hope. I put in parentheses after despair, no hope. There's nothing I can do about it. I have no hope. 
This is one of the things that the enemy tries to put upon people that are in a way of sin. He tries to get them to think they have no hope. They cannot change the direction that they're on. That they are set in a direction and no matter what they do, this is what's going to happen. You are a sinner. God cannot and does not want to save you because you are so caught up in your sin. You have done too much. The sins you have committed are too great. Whatever it might be, he wants to get them into despair and to think, there is no hope for me. There is no way that I can get out of this. And if we fall into a place of despair, we won't come into a place of repentance simply because I don't feel it would do any good. But we see a number of times in the Word of God where repentance did do good. Even with Nineveh, as sinful as they were, they repented and God forgave them. We see how many times Israel had been so involved in sin. one point they were cleaning out the house of God from all the debris that had picked up in there, found a book. And they read the book and found out this was the law and they had greatly disobeyed it. And they repented. And Josiah led them into a great, a great uh, time of repentance and God forgave them. He says, but uh, it's just for this generation. God knew that after this generation they were going to forget it. They were going to go back into their way of sin, and they did. If they would have stayed out of that sin for the next generation, God would have spared them another generation. If he would have stayed out of that sin for another generation, he would have spared that one too. But they didn't. As soon as Josiah was gone, they went back into their way of sin. All right, verse verse 12. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, the righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because because of it in that day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. So here we have, in verse 13 again, we read that, When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. There's a lot of times people say, well, look at all the good that I did. Look at all the righteousness that I, I have done. Look at all the times I have served God. I've served God for 20 years. I've been in church for 30 years. I've been reading the Bible. I have this much of it memorized. They list all these things, and these are good things. These are things that will help you in your in your walk. But he says here, When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity. People want to trust in their own righteousness. You'll hear this in their phrases that they'll, they'll say, I haven't done anything that bad. I haven't done anything that deserves hell. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't uh, robbed a bank or... Uh, and they'll list a number of things that to them are great sins, and I haven't done those. I may have done other sins, but I've decided that those sins are lesser sins, and they are not sins that are deserving of hell. They've made that decision on their own. Because they made that decision, they want to impose that decision on God. And they look at their acts of sin. Now, this is the deception that the enemy tries to put people in even today, has throughout history. He was doing it back here in the days of Ezekiel. Self-righteousness. That... What I have done is enough to keep me out of hell. What I haven't done is enough to not have me be sent to hell. I haven't done any of these great things. 
then if uh, if we thought one sin was a great sin but, and then we committed it, suddenly it's not a great sin anymore. The enemy has deceived us into thinking, that's not so bad. Uh, look at all these other good things that you've done. And we try and rely on those. And God says, if you try and rely on self-righteousness, you will die in your sin. See, there's a righteousness outside of ourselves, And that's what we need to receive. When Jesus gave us the message of the gospel, when we see it preached in the Word of God, it's simply this. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. No matter how good or how bad I have been, I have been born into sin, and that's what I need to be redeemed from. And all we need to do is to ask Him, and we can be restored. That's why predestination doesn't work. Because God won't predestine you to make that decision that is your own. You get to decide which way that you're going to go. Now, the fact that God knows which way people will go makes no difference because God is involved in all times at, at, at once. We just we are not that way. He is. He's not bound by time. We are. We can only be in one second at a time. And as soon as that second passes, we can't go back into it and we can't go future into the other ones. But God can. He showed us that in the Word of God. I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham is how Jesus taught it to us. But self-righteousness. The enemy wants to try and get us to think that we're not so bad and that God would not send someone like me to hell. And we, of course, have all these things that go on showing up at the pearly gates. And Peter takes a look at our our, uh, sins, what we've done, what we haven't done to decide whether we should get in. All that we need to do to get into heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all we need. All right, let's go on here, verse 14. So self-righteousness, that's the, that's the second one. Despair or no hope, that's the first one. Verse 14, again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. If he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair. But it is their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair, O house of Israel. I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. I put, to, you could write this second, the third one down, either of two ways. One way is to say God's injustice. That God is not just in the judgments that he makes. That to let this one in and to not let me in. To decide that this one is righteous and this one is not. To say that this murderer over here can be forgiven, but I who haven't committed murder can't be because I didn't accept Jesus Christ, whatever it might be. We'll look at it and say, God is not fair. So you can write down here either God's injustice or God's not fair, whichever one is is uh, better for you. But people even today, they come up with reasons why God is not fair. Why is it that, that God would let this go on? And they'll look at other things outside of themselves to determine that God's not fair. How is it that this, this little one over here can die? That's not fair that they get to die, that they should die. 
And the enemy is always making us look at things that are going on around the world and saying, God's not fair that he is allowing that to happen. And if I have this mentality that God is not fair, that there's injustice in God, then I have put myself as a judge for God. That's not a good place to be. Verse 17 again, Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. Now for us, once we make a determination that something is fair, everything else isn't. Once I determine that I should be paid as much as this person is paid at my job and anything else is unfair, then anything else is unfair because I've determined it that way. No one can come talk to me about it. Nobody can come and say, hey, look at the different things that are here. Uh, look at the, the uh, qualifications. Look at uh, the reasons. We don't want to hear any of that. No, I'm doing more work than they are. I'm doing better work than they are. And we've made that judgment. And anything else, in our view, is unfair. Never get an idea that we can judge whether God is operating fairly or not. We don't have that, that ability. That comes from the pit of hell. Because Satan knows if he can get you to begin to pass judgment on God and decide that he's unjust, that he's not fair, that that will get you in bondage. Isn't that what the devil himself did? Then he say, it's not fair that God's over all this. I have enough power. I have enough that I should be able to assert myself. I should be able to get some worship. It's not fair that I don't have to have any. I don't get to have any of that. And he determined what was fair. The enemy is always going to feed us into thinking somehow it's not fair what we received. But take, take a look at some of the people in the Word of God. Look at Moses. Was it fair that he received all the abuse that he received for 40 years walking around in the wilderness with the children of Israel? Was that fair? Was it fair for Joseph to undergo all that he went through with slavery, with his brothers? It's not about being fair. It's about what's needed for the kingdom. It wasn't fair that Jesus walked around on this earth with all the persecution and went to the cross and died a death he didn't deserve. That wasn't fair. But he never held that up. He never said to God, God, it's not fair that I have to go through this. He found out what God needed for his kingdom and he went out to do it. When we're called into the kingdom, we don't do the things that are best for us. We do the things that are best for the kingdom. God, what do you want to want to have done. And whatever it is, it's fair. I don't pass judgment on the things of God. I don't tell God, well, God, you can't do that. See, I'm the servant. He's God. So we got to make sure we, we stay with that. So, despair, self-righteousness, and God's injustice, or God's not fair, whatever you want to put there for that last one. Those are just three things that can keep people from listening to the word that God has sent. Three things that will keep them in their sin. Three things that will keep them from repenting. I say that God is, is not fair. If you, uh, I just wrote down the reference for you here. We're not going to go there and turn there. But in Acts chapter 2, 37 and 38, Peter delivered a message. And the, the people heard it. And they say, what shall we do? And the message to them was, repent and be baptized. He gave them an action to take. But when the word of the Lord comes to us, the first thing we need to do do is to repent. Way back in the garden, that wasn't the way that they went. 
when they were confronted with their sin, when the word came, who told you that you were naked? We didn't say, I sinned. We didn't, uh, we didn't go right into repent. We went into blaming. Well, it was this person's fault. Well, no, it was her fault. Well, no, it was a serpent's fault. And we keep going over there looking for whose fault it is. If I'm looking for whose fault it is, I'm not ready to take, take action the way that God wants, which is to repent. If we have an attitude that I'm ready to repent, when the word of the Lord comes to me, I'm ready to repent. And it doesn't matter who else is, is sinning, who else is guilty of the same thing, who else has done this more than me. None of that matters. All that matters is God spoke the word. I see that I'm not measuring up to what he said to do. Therefore, I need to repent. And we just say, Father, I have sinned. And I'll tell you what, if we do that, mercy can come to us. We open the doors up for mercy to come. Let's keep on going here in verse, verse uh, 21. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, the one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been captured. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me that evening before the man came who had escaped. And he had opened my mouth so that when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. So this, the date of this is January the 8th, 585 BC. An eyewitness has arrived from Jerusalem. They escaped from all the destruction that was going on, from the sword, from all the things that had had uh, been going on. Somehow they had gotten through. Ezekiel's last words to the Jews before he began to, to prophesy to the Assyria of Egypt, the other nations that were around, and we, we covered them. There was uh, chapter 25 up to 32. But the last words he had for the Jews came out of Ezekiel 24. I'm going to read 25 through 27 with you. And you, son of man, Will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy, and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters? On that day, one who escapes will come to you. So God prophesied this back in chapter 24, that one, not two, not three, not four, but that one would escape and it will come to them. And let you hear it with your own ears. So they're not hearing the report from the Babylonians. They're not reading the paper in the morning and finding out what happened. This is about four or five months after the city had fallen. It takes about four or five months to get from uh, the area of Jerusalem to where they are. It says, On that day, one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. Then you shall, then you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now the siege of Jerusalem had begun around December, January of 588 BC. Two years and seven months later, Jerusalem falls. That's around September 586 BC. So January 588 BC around to September 586 B.C. <clears throat> the uh, references for that is uh, 2 Kings 25.1 and 2 Kings 25.8. Now the eyewitnesses arrive about 45 uh, months later. The eyewitnesses, I'm sorry, arrive about four or five months later. 
in, if you want to write this down, you can look this up later on. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9. That gives us the time of about four months for the trip to go from Jerusalem to where they are here in the, the area of Babylon. Now, Ezekiel's mutinous is released. We talked a little bit about his mutinous before. It was announced in chapter 3, verse 26, when he says, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. So how was Ezekiel mute? Because there was a whole lot of words that were given between then and now. So as we explained to you before, it is possible that he stayed silent and wrote them down. That's one one possibility that he may have done. Uh, the other was that most prophets went on a circuit. Most prophets went out to the people and began to speak. And it may be that during this time of muteness that if he went out from his house, he could not speak. All he could do was speak at the house. You'll see throughout these chapters that sometimes the elders of the Israel would come to his house and they would sit and they would ask for the word of the Lord and he would deliver it. So it may be possible that here at the house he, he could speak, but outside the house where most prophets, when they would leave the house and they would go around into the city, they would go around into the square and they would talk with the people. If he did leave and he did go out to the, to the, the square, he, uh, he may have been mute then. He may not have been able to speak until he got back. It may be that he was able to, to uh, uh, not have any conversation except what the Lord spoke to him. And that might be the muteness that was there. Whatever it is, it makes sense to God, it makes sense to Ezekiel, and it makes sense to all the people that are around that he was mute to some degree up until this day. God speak, speaks to him the night before. It says that uh, person that escaped, I told you about, they're coming. They'll be here tomorrow. So I'm getting you ready for it now. I'm releasing that muteness. You're going to be able to speak. Once he gets in here, your mouth is going to be open. And whatever it was that he was hindered from doing, he is able to do at this time. I had one, uh, one commentator who wrote this about it. Ezekiel was restrained from speaking publicly among the people in contrast to the normal vocal ministry of the prophets. The prophets usually moved among their people speaking God's message as they observed the contemporary situation. But Ezekiel was told to remain in his home except to dramatize God's message. He would remain mute except when God opened his mouth to deliver a divine message. Instead of Ezekiel going to the people, the people had to come to him. Let's go on to verse 23. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham has only one, or was only one, and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. So we got this uh, person. They've come. They've discussed the, the, what has gone on in there. And the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel to speak this. Here's the first problem that they are, uh, that God is pinpointing and telling Ezekiel about. This is what's going on. The men of Israel are saying Abraham was only one and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. It's tough when you read that to really see what the problem is. The problem was that there are some people that were left in the land. The, the rich people, the prominent people, the people of high society were all taken away in captivity. The ones they left are the lowest of society. They are the most undesirable ones. They are the ones they saw very little good in. No reason to bring them along. They're not going to help us out any. 
So we'll leave them here to take care of the land, to farm it, and to uh, take care of the vineyards and all the different things that are there. So these people are now left with all this land, and so they're making these land grabs, and they have decided amongst themselves that this is so-and-so's land, but we don't care that they're in captivity. We're taking their land. And the reason that they're justifying is Abraham was one person, and he was given all this land. We are many people compared to the one. Why should we not inherit the land that Abraham inherited? These other people, they're gone. They're in captivity. They have relinquished their 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 right to that. Well, according to God, you never relinquish your right. If you had a possession in the land, that possession was your family's. And even if you sold it, the year of Jubilee, it was supposed to come back to you because God wanted each person to have a part of the land. Each of the people of Israel. This belonged to the family. And that family was to continue with that. If they came in hard times and had to sell a part of it off at the year of Jubilee, that should come back to them. Of course, Israel, as far as we can tell, never celebrated the year of Jubilee. But that's what their wording here is. Abraham was only one. We're, uh, we're a lot more than that. Now there's a, they have a covenant mind in that they're thinking this, this land was granted to us as a covenant. And because it was a covenant, this land will always belong to us. Now many, even today, will teach this, that the Jews continue to possess the land under an unconditional promise from God. And that's really not the case. Because the promise from God, if you go through the book of Deuteronomy, if you go through the rest of the law, it was always said, you will inherit the land, you will keep the land, unless, if you don't keep my commands, if you don't worship me, if you worship some of the idols, all these conditions were put in there. If you begin to do these different things, then you won't have the land anymore. So it was never an unconditional promise that you will have the land. But you know, we don't remember the conditions. When we were, when we were younger, and we were going through uh, growing up phases. All of us had confrontation with our parents about uh, conditional promises. Mom and dad might promise us, you can have dessert as long as you eat all your dinner. And of course, we don't remember the condition. It comes to dessert time, I want dessert. But what was the, what was the promise? If I eat all my dinner. Well, I ate most of it. And so we want to uh, we want to renege on that. We want to see it as an unconditional promise. And they they certainly were doing that here. They wanted to see the land is ours unconditionally. Well, there there was an unconditional promise that was there. That unconditional promise was that Abraham it was made to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed because of Abraham. That was an unconditional promise, and it was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ came. Gentiles and Jews benefited from what he had done. All, all people could be born again and could be saved. That was an unconditional promise and that promise is going to be fulfilled regardless of what people do. Whether they accept that blessing or not is up to them, but that blessing is going to be there. The ability to have that is there. But the land being Israel's is not an unconditional promise. They need to serve God and serve him only. The, um, let's see, let's, let's go on here with verse 15 of Ezekiel 11. Wanted to read this one to you. Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, get far away from the, 
from the land. I'm probably from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. So even back there in chapter 11, he was still dealing with this mentality. This land is ours unconditionally. It's not an unconditional promise. It is a, a promise of condition. Back in uh, 597 BC, the people made a similar claim that this is ours. This is uh, not when Jerusalem fell completely, but when they had uh, uh, lost one of the battles to the Babylonians and came into servanthood. I have this note about this passage. This uh, illustrates with remarkable aptness the overwhelming arrogance of the minority who wake up one morning and find themselves in the majority. Can you think about that? All these people that are left in the land, they were the minority. They had the the higher class folks who ruled over them. They had a voice, but that voice didn't seem to be heard. Now all of a sudden, all the people who squashed their voice are moved out of the way. And they now make up the land. And this is new power for them. And they have an overwhelming amount of arrogance. It's amazing how much arrogance we would have as a minority when the minority becomes the majority, as it did here. He went on, Moreover, like so many in the minority, they live in the past and endeavor to draw on ancient precedents to buttress insubstantial claims for the present. They live in the past and endeavor to draw on ancient precedents to buttress insubstantial claims for the present. This is what they'll do once the minority people, whatever they they are. They, these were the poor. These are the people who had no no say. Even if they made up a, a large number of the people, they didn't have a say, so they were a minority in, in what they could do to influence where the country was going and what the country would do or what would happen for for the, themselves. So once they come into the majority, there is an arrogance that came with them. And then look at the past. Look at, look at Abraham over here. He inherited the whole land as one person. And therefore, they've derived interpretations from that and made claims that have no substance. Claims for the present. I thought that was an interesting uh, note that was there. Anyway, let's go on here. Verse 25 in Ezekiel 33. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with blood. You lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? So they're saying, we should possess the land because we're children of Abraham. We're the only ones here. And so we're going to divide up the land that's here, that's left, and we're all going to take some. And we're going to get more than what we had. And we didn't have a whole lot before, now we're going to have more. We're going to have more land than we had before. And when this becomes prosperous again, we're going to be in good shape. So God gives them a number of reasons. He lists some reasons why they are not in as good a shape as they they think. You all think that you should inherit the land, but you're doing the same sins that the people got kicked out of the land are doing. You eat meat with blood. You lift up your eyes towards your idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. They were people of violence. Remember when uh, one of the rebellions, they killed Gadaliah. And, and murdered him. And then they all fled down to Egypt because they were afraid of what the Babylonians were going to do when they came in. You commit abominations. 
You defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Look at the things that you're doing. You're not acting like children of Israel. You're not acting like children of God. You're not acting like children of Abraham. You're, you're sinning. You're sinning just as much as the people that got pulled out. And all the words that were spoken to them, you've ignored. And you saw the destruction that came. And still, you don't repent. So God lists several reasons why they, they, they don't qualify. They're not going to be possessors here. He goes on in verse 27. Thus, uh, say thus to them, Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall fall by the sword. And the one who is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence. For I will make the land most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease. God does not like arrogance. He says that arrogant strength, it shall cease. And the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. So God says, I'm going to make this land desolate. No one will even want it. And we've seen that when Israel has been out of the land, the land has been desolate. Even before Israel came in in this last time, the land was barren. No one wanted it. But when Israel came back in, the land began to flourish again. It began to prosper. And things began to grow. And then everybody said they wanted it. And everybody began to lay claim to it. But nobody wanted it before Israel moved back in because it was desolate. And it was desolate back after uh, the captivity in this day as, as well. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word of the Lord that comes or hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. All of a sudden, Ezekiel is popular. We don't know exactly what changed. Maybe now he's able to walk around in a circuit. And he's able to, to proclaim the things that God has, has spoken. But the message here changes. Up until now, it's been a message of doom and gloom. He's, he's uh, prophesied against Jerusalem is falling. Jerusalem is going to be burned. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. People are going to die. The ones that don't die are going to be carried off into captivity. The few that are left behind are going to have a hard time. And this is all doom and gloom that he was preaching. But now, that has all been realized and now the whole ministry of Ezekiel is, is going to shift and he's going to be talking about what's going to happen to Israel. What kind of restoration is going on, which we'll get to here in just a minute. And all of a sudden people want to hear this. We want to hear about the restoration. We want to hear about the good things that are to come. Suddenly, Ezekiel is popular. And God's telling him this. It's not that the people are telling this. God's telling him this. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you. God hears them. He says they're over there by the walls and in the doors of their houses. And they speak to one another. Have you heard what Ezekiel said? Have you been here? You ought to come out and hear what Ezekiel says. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, it's good to hear. But verse 31, So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words. They look like, they look like Christians. They look like people who serve God. They come to you as people. As people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, 
but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on the instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. When I read that verse, I was thinking of this. Have you ever heard a song that the beat was kind of catchy? You kind of like the beat. You kind of like the, the tune. But the words were terrible. You, you almost didn't want to sing the words. You just kind of want to hum the, hum the, the tune because the tune was kind of catchy. You liked the tune, but you didn't like the words. This is kind of like what, what it's going on here. They, um, they like the tune. They don't necessarily like the words. I'm, I'm here. It looks good. I'm sitting here listening. But, um, yeah, I'm not really going to do anything that he's saying. I'm not really going to change. They like the sound of the words, but they don't like the call to action. There was an article in Time Magazine. I saw a note that was presented about this. It was dated April the 5th, 1993. In this article, they said the church will never be the same because the baby boomers, the generation that forgot God, are going back to church. But it's not going to be business as usual. These returnees are described as traveling from church to church shopping for a custom-made God. In an effort to attract these shoppers, more and more churches are becoming customer-oriented. As an example, the article cited one church as having songs one Sunday morning ranging from Oh, What a Beautiful Morning to Danny Boy. Now, I, I, I know I've heard the song Danny Boy. I know I've heard the title. I do not remember what Danny Boy was about. But can you, can you imagine singing songs like this? Oh, What a Beautiful Morning in church. And I've heard places that have done some secular songs that had nothing to do about God. And they're just singing away. Because uh, we like the tune. Now, let me go on here. Before we get too judgmental on this point, we should first check to see if these songs are in our own songbook. <laughs> the meeting climaxed in hugging with the preacher raising his arms high and booming, Hey God, make my day. Go for it. Well, the article uh, went on, of course, and talked about a lot of different things. That um, basically, the people that were coming back to church, they wanted to be entertained. And so the churches began to measure up to that entertainment. And different things were added to entertain. Different things were added that people would come in and they would sit down and they would feel good. Oh, this was a nice place to be today. Oh, I really enjoyed. I got a good feeling about being here. But the words that are spoken, the things that come from the word, no one's changing. No one's taking heed to any of the uh, calls for repentance that the word of God has. In fact, we may even just avoid all those scriptures altogether because we don't want people to be convicted. I've heard some churches actually go that way. They say, we don't want anybody to come under conviction here at church. Then they, uh, you know, they won't feel comfortable. Uh, and that's not what, uh, what we're out to do. Well, a certain amount of unpopularity is desired. And even though Ezekiel is going through a little bit of time of being popular, it's not because he's done anything wrong. It's just, um, the message has changed. God has, has been giving him a different, different message to proclaim. And suddenly he's, he is the in speaker. 
everybody else who said that Jerusalem wasn't going to fall, well, we can't go to them because obviously they were wrong. So he was the one who was who was right. He's the one who prophesied about this thing. So let's go on. Let's listen over here. Let's see what Ezekiel has to say. But when they got up and they left the meeting, nobody changed. Luke 6, 26 says this, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Ooh, that's a powerful verse. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If everybody thinks you are doing a great job, you're probably doing something wrong. Maybe a lot of things wrong. The world ought to despise you. I've said this a number of times. If I, a politician who's going to get my attention is someone that the news media hates. If the news media does not hate them, I cannot vote for them because somehow they know something about them that I don't know. Ungodly people are not going to like people with a call of God on their lives who pursue it, who stand with the Word of God and don't compromise it. They're not going to like it. They may, uh, for a, a short period of time, like Ezekiel has here, maybe they'll be uh, popular for a little bit, but it won't last. Eventually they're going to start, uh, no, 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 we, we need to get away from that. There was an author by the name of Jim, and I, boy, I have a tough time with his name, McWiggin. And I'll just read a section out of his book in his commentary, not commentary, but he, he was making a note about this particular section of Ezekiel. He said, this section makes it very clear that the popular preacher is not necessarily the effective preacher. It does not immediately follow that he who has the crowds is the one through whom God is doing his effective work. Now, James 1.22, we all are familiar with that. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. These were not doers of the word. They were hearers only. They would hear the word, but they wouldn't change. They would do what was what was popular, what's popular right now to sit on down here and to listen to Ezekiel. Everybody's saying, come on out and hear what Ezekiel has to say. And so everybody came on out to hear what Ezekiel has to say. This is the popular place to be, but I'm not going to change anything. God may say, quit doing this. Don't be serving these idols. Don't be uh, doing whatever things he's calling for. And they're not going to listen to that. Oh, but that's a good message. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a great thing. But we're not changing it. I put this in your outline for you. If we shirk our responsibilities to heed God's message, we will fail to walk in His righteousness for us, leading to ruin because of our refusal to obey. That's just getting all those four things uh, tied together. If we shirk our responsibilities, because that was the first part he talked about, was the responsibilities of the watchman and the responsibilities of those who heard him. If we shirk our responsibilities to heed God's message, we will fail to walk in His righteousness for us. They had excuses for why they were not going to walk in the righteousness of God. They thought uh, there was no hope. They were in despair. They uh, thought they were righteous on their own. They have different reasons for it. But we fail to walk in His righteousness for us. This leads to ruin. When we don't heed His message and we don't do the things that He says to do, they will lead to our own ruin because of our refusal to obey. Now, as we said, this changes the theme of Ezekiel. This chapter is the is the uh, breaking point where we're leaving what had been the the doom that was coming. After the fall of Jerusalem is announced, the theme 
of his message undergoes a radical change. There's no longer any need to announce impending doom for Jerusalem because Jerusalem has been destroyed. That part's done. Instead, Ezekiel is going to begin to preach restoration. You're going to see two kinds of restoration here in these chapters to come. First, we're going to see physical restoration. And this is under Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to see a physical resurrection in the building of the temple and the building of the wall of Jerusalem. And second, he's going to be talking about spiritual restoration. And this comes under Jesus Christ. And Ezekiel is going to begin to, to preach this. We're going to have a lot from Ezekiel about the future. Some of the things that he's prophesied have yet to come about. But what we have to, to look at is that everything that he has prophesied up to this point has, has occurred. It's all come about. When that news of Jerusalem came, it put a stamp of approval on him. This is a man of God. What he spoke came about. Other people said it would never come about that way. Other people spoke and condemned it, but it came about. So now he's got more credibility than the rest. How far that will carry him, you give a hard message, no matter how much credibility you have, people will sometimes toss that right out the, right out the window. But we're going to begin to see some of these things that will be to come. There'll be prophesy, prophesying things that will come in the end times. There'll be prophesying things that will come in the future. The things that happen after the end times. And the things, things that would come in even our days. So we'll look forward to hearing some of those things that he does. Father, we thank you for Ezekiel and the words that you gave him. How he was so careful to say exactly what you said. And we can take the words that he spoke to us and understand this is exactly what you wanted us to hear. We may have all kinds of reasons that when the word of the Lord comes to us, whether it's spoken by a watchman, whether it's spoken by your spirit to us, whether we're reading your word and you quicken it to us, but we can take the rebuke knowing that if you are correcting us, there's time to change. There's time to alter where we're going and what's happening. So Father, I thank you. There are good things ahead for us if we yield to your word. Pride, hard-heartedness will keep us from going that direction. Father, we just need to hear your word and yield ourselves to it. The enemy wants to build us up in pride, cause our hearts to be hard, that we would be resistant to the things that God would give us, the things that God would say. Father, I thank you that every one of us, we can have a soft heart towards you. We can receive the things of God. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.